On Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. Hello and welcome to On Your Wavelength. I'm Ankitha Nirban from Nature Reviews Physics and I'm joining you today from London. Hi Ankita. Um, I'm Cristiano. I'm Cristiano Matricardi from Nature Communications and I'm tuning from Berlin. Thanks to all of our listeners who tuned last uh, last month when we discussed about uh, antimatter. And if you haven't listened to the podcast yet, you can go to the Nature Portfolio Community, Physics Community, and look for On Your Wavelength podcast. And today we're talking about optics, which actually is very relevant for an online podcast because unlike old school radio shows, transmitted through radio waves, the internet is actually brought to you by optical cables, which is actually something I always forget. I always think of the internet as like the sort of wireless ethereal thing floating through the air. But I mean, of course, it relies on this huge infrastructure of undersea cables, which actually, you know, it's not too dissimilar to how telegraphs were sent about 200 years ago. Yeah, just not not, not for a long time, I think. Just in, in, a few, in a few years, we will have a revolution. But until now... Uh, there's a huge network, like 90, more than 90% of uh, fiber optics that just brings internet to your computers, just it's under the sea. Uh, and this is for a reason, because it's easy just for with fiber optics to transfer informations. And, uh, but at the same time, some researchers have found a way to use this fiber optics for another interesting application like sensing earthquake. You know, just sensing with optical fiber is not like unknown, but there was a trick that just made this sensing really much better than it was before. Actually, uh, a recent report is another paper uh, um, appeared on, on science in which the authors uh, actually use optical interferometry to measure the vibration under under the sea, just on the uh, seafloor environmental uh, level. What they do is like they have been able, thanks to this uh, optical interferometry, like just coupling a laser source to the fiber optic, they were able to segment and measure the vibration every segment just independently normally just you would have averaged all over the length of the fiber but just they were actually able to separate and just precisely selecting a position in which they could have measured the vibration in this way thanks to uh, triangulation they were offering a, a way to constrain the location of earthquake and offering a much better spatial resolution of the undersea modern monitoring. Wow, so I always think of optics as being sort of desktop experiments. I didn't realize that you could also use optical sensing for geological studies. That's super interesting. So the paper we're discussing today was published in Nature Communications last month, and the handling editor was Cristiano. The paper is called All Optical Control of Phase Singularities Using Strong Light Matter Coupling by Philip Thomas et al. 
It was published on 5th of April 2022, Nature Communications, Volume 13, Article Number 1809. And today, I'm very pleased to introduce lead author Philip Thomas from the University of Exeter, who's joining us today. So welcome, Philip. Um, would you like to say a few words to introduce yourself? Okay, hello. Yes, my name is Philip. I work at the University of Exeter in a group led by a chap called Bill Barnes, and we study how light and matter interact on the nanoscale. And in particular, we're very interested in looking at how, yeah, how light and organic matter interact. Okay, and um, the paper we're discussing today is about optically controlling phase singularities. So could you start by explaining to us what a phase singularity is? Okay, so to understand what a phase singularity is, you need to understand what's going on with light. So light is a wave and it oscillates up and down, you know, like what you have in the logo of your podcast. And waves have different properties, so the frequency tells you how quickly the oscillations happen, the amplitude tells you how big they are, and if you have two waves with the same frequency that are slightly out of sync, then phase is the parameter that you use to quantify that out of synchiness. And in optics experiments, we try and understand the world by seeing how properties such as amplitude and phase change after interacting with something. And an interesting mathematical quirk happens at points where the amplitude becomes zero. At these points, the phase can take any value you like, and you end up with the same result. So the phase is, you can say, undefined, and we call these points phase singularities. So when you say you'll end up with the same result, what exactly do you mean? It means it doesn't matter what value of phase you put in, the same to your equation, the same result comes out. Ah, okay. And so that's sort of like a mathematical explanation. Um, how would you describe that in an experimental setting? It's, um, like it's a point where, yeah, the wave isn't doing anything. It's either cancelled itself out. If you're looking at interference effects, then it's a point at which you have destructive interference and two waves have cancelled themselves out. If you're looking at reflection spectrum, so you're looking at how light is reflected from a material, which is what I do, then you're looking for points at which the reflection is zero. So these are specific points where light behaves in a certain way. And do they have specific applications or are they just interesting from a conceptual point of view? I think they're fun, um, and they when you plot them and you get these things, you get all these sort of swirling effects. You know, it's a bit like um, if you look at a whirlpool or if you look at a hurricane, you get all this swirling around. It's the same thing, but you're doing it with light, and that's just really fun and cool. But I come from a background looking at reflection spectra rather than looking at how these things happen in sort of quote-unquote real space. When you're looking at phase singularities and reflection spectra, you have these huge jumps, these huge sudden jumps in, in your phase spectrum. These are very sharp points, which could be very interesting for sensing applications. When you're interested in sensing something with a reflection spectrum, you want a very nice sharp point. If that point then moves in response to some change, and if you have a very sudden phase jump, as you get around these 
face singularity points, then it doesn't get much better than that. What kind of things would you be able to sense using face singularities? So during my PhD a few years ago, I looked at using phase singularities in a slightly more complicated system than what we've got here. We looked at surface plasmons and we looked at uh, how if you got molecules to bind near the surface of the metals that produced these surface plasmons, these sort of surface waves that were also, they gave these phase singularities, you could measure really small quantities of, uh, of matter. You're talking sort of femtogram levels and it's, yeah, really super sensitive stuff. That sounds very impressive. Femtograms, that's tiny. <laughs> um, so Cristiano, do you receive many papers on phase singularities? Is this a common sort of technique for sensing? Actually, um, in this field, like in this precise field, on where once want to create phase singularities, I and control phase singularity. I'm not receiving much paper, much more paper than I receive in, as in other topics. In this can be explained because, of course, the fields of optical singularities is also uh, well explored. So just uh, benchtop um, setups are really. Uh, can be really fine-tuned to create a, a plethora of uh, optical singularity in general. But the thing is, the, this kind of field is, uh, is still growing and it's still interesting because, of course, all of this optical singularity that have been, that have been produced, now people want to use them want to find the real application and want to transfer this bulk optical components into minor miniaturized system or system that we can control easily or a system that have more flexibility. And so um, uh, phase singularities in 2D materials happens, phase singularity with metamaterials happens, uh, um, just more than phase singularity, phase singularity uh, sheets uh, we have published. There are two other manuscript manuscript published in Nature Communications on these topics, and this kind of this work actually create phase singularity in a in in a different way, and which caught my attention, and in in a way that could have been all optical all optically tuned. So it seems like a key part of the importance of this work was the fact that it was optically control. So Philip, why was it important to you to try and find a way of optical control in this work? So I guess the thing is, when you're trying to create these kinds of phase singularities using which, you know, as Christiana says, usually done using uh, metasurfaces or other kinds of things, it's possible to design and engineer these things. But once you've made, for example, a metallic nanostructure the conditions under which you have these phase singularities, it's pretty much fixed. You know, you need to have a certain polarization of light. You need to irradiate the, um, the structure at a certain instant angle. And it all has to be very precise. And here we're able to tune the conditions under which these phase singularities occur simply by shining light on the system. Do you sort of paint a picture to us describing how your setup actually looks? What do you have? What kind of a material is it? What's the shape? Is there a laser? Tell, tell us how it is. So the story of how this study came about, it came about, like all the best stories in science, completely by accident. 
So I have uh, in my lab a piece of kit called an ellipsometer, and it's a wonderful, fantastic sort of Thunderbirds-esque piece of kit that sort of buzzes and whirs and enters all these things. So we had um, one of the other co-authors on the paper, a chap called Kishan, was very interested in this photosensitive molecule. And he said to me, I've got this photosensitive molecule. Can you measure the optical constants for me in your ellipsometer? And he just so happened to spin just the right thickness of film on just the right kind of substrates. And then I measured it at just the right instant angle that I spotted. First of all, yes, I spotted these phase singularities, but also this molecule was sensitive to ultraviolet light. And it just so happens that the light source that I have in my ellipsometer, it gives a broad continuum of ultraviolet light. So just completely by accident, I spotted, you know, oh, there's this conversion pro, uh, this conversion process that's going on, and I spotted, oh, there's this thing that looks like strong coupling, and I spotted, oh, that looks to be like a phase singularity. I like those. So the stars really aligned for you here. Um, so you've got this film. Um, so there's very specific thickness of an organic molecule on a substrate and when you shine light on it you see these phase singularities so how do you go about controlling them so um it's the combination of instant angle uh, that you measure things at it's a combination of how long you leave your sample in the um being exposed to this ultraviolet light as you increase the number of molecules in your system then you uh which you do with the ultraviolet light um as you yeah you leave it in the ultraviolet light for a long period of time eventually you get more and more molecules and the behavior of the system changes the phase response changes and you tune into this uh, position where you have a phase singularity and then you tune out of it again afterwards. It's quite, it's quite cool that you just sort of pass it by. So let's go back to this idea of strong coupling that we've mentioned a bit. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how that fits in your experiment? Oh, well, strong coupling is fun. So imagine that you have a molecule and this molecule can absorb and it can emit light at a particular wavelength. If you have this molecule and you place it in a big, large, empty space and it's absorbing and emitting light, then the light that's emitted, it shoots off and that's the end of the story. But imagine that you place this molecule in a structure that can also absorb and emit light at the same kind of wavelength. In that case, the emitted light, it can then be reabsorbed by the structure. And when this structure absorbs and emit light, the emitted light can now be absorbed by the molecule. So you have this exchange of light between the molecule and this we could call an electromagnetic structure. And by increasing the intensity of the electromagnetic in this structure, or by increasing the number of molecules, you can eventually reach a point where more of the emitted light from this system of molecules and you know, the structure, most of the emitted light is being exchanged between the structure and the molecule and very little of it is actually escaping the structure. And when that happens, the molecule and the electromagnetic structure, they're said to be in what we call the strong coupling regime. 
And this is where the weird stuff starts to happen. When you have two, um, when you have two things that are coupled together, like a molecule and, um, and an electromagnetic structure, then the original light and matter states are replaced by hybrid states. And we call these states polaritons. Great word, polariton. Doesn't that just, I'll say it again, polariton. It just basically, it's a combination of light and matter. Uh, a mixture of the two things and it's very exciting for a very large number of reasons the formation of these polaritons using strong light matter coupling because it provides you with a way of modifying the properties of these light and matter states but people have only ever really studied it by looking at amplitude data very few people have stopped to think you know what actually happens in the phase response that's one of the things that we discovered by accident, is that a lot of fun stuff happens in the phase response of these systems. And uh, normally when I've heard of uh, polaritons and other sort of exciting coupled states, they're in the context of being trapped inside a cavity. But as far as I understand, your experiment doesn't use a cavity. So how does that work? Oh, this is fun. So you're right, most of the pioneering work that's been done with uh, strong coupling, it's by done by having the sort of parallel planar microcavities. But there's a lot of work that's been done using surface plasmons. You place molecules near the surface of metals, and surface plasmons are also very good at creating these confined electromagnetic fields. And it's actually, it's not the fact that you have this cavity structure. It's the fact that you have these confined electromagnetic fields. It's a growing area of research within strong coupling is to say, you know, okay, if you have a cavity and you have molecules inside that cavity, you're able to modify the properties of, of those molecules inside the cavity. You know, hey, gee whiz, isn't that cool? But also the molecules are trapped inside the cavity. And what's the use of having modified uh, molecules when you can't get to them. So there's a lot of interest in looking at these so-called cavity-free structures. It seems like quite a lot of unexpected um, results came out of you looking at this thin film um, in your ellipsometer. Um, Christiana, what was your reaction when you saw this paper? So um, it, this was a transfer. And I would like to spend two words on transfers. With transfer, I mean like when some editors realizes that that some papers can be better suited for a different journal, they can actually suggest this different journal. We cannot talk with the other editors because, of course, every Nature Journal is editorially independent. Means that to talk with other editors about the submission that we receive of, uh, upon transfers, we have to have the um, uh, authorization from the from the authors. This kind of transfer allowed the uh, the authors to choose a better way because the previous editor was actually seeing potential for nature communications. And my first impression when I say when I saw this manuscript, I didn't, as I said, I didn't receive a lot of manuscript on face um, on face singularities, on optical singularity in general. And yeah, I thought that was a really good manuscript that we could have sent to review at first glance. And actually, it it, it it's been uh, it's been a good uh, a good one. 
how did the peer review process go for it? Were the referees also intrigued by the results? Yeah, the referees in general were, were uh, intrigued and curious about this kind of, uh, um, of realization of face singularities because, of course, if you are get used to see face singularities from a vortex light and just someone comes to you and say just we can do face singularity in a completely different way that you don't know, just they, they are intrigued and also uh, some kind of uh, um, some reservation of how to connect just conceptually this singularity that they were looking at in the work with singularities that just once can achieve with with classical in, in a classical way let's say so there were like a uh, discussion on on technical on technical aspects uh, but also on conceptual aspect and the authors did really good really good work in actually convincing our reviewers on the value of, of the work were the referees all from the same field or did you get have a range of sort of different angles looking at this paper? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, normally, just when you when you want to assess some manuscript, just uh, you try to look at what has been done in the manuscript and just try to find aspects that you want to assess. So we had different expertises in the reviewer pool and uh, also more applied researchers as well as researchers really experienced on, on face singularities. How was the referee process for you, Philip? Do you think the they made some useful comments that improved the paper or were they just a pain? It did actually, it was probably one of the better, if not the best experience I've had with peer review because our expertise as a group is very much more in the strong coupling end of things and looking at how you can get a face singularity in a reflection spectra. And this is very much a minority view of how you study face singularities. People are much more interested and there's much more history in studying face singularities in real space. And what I mean by that is you know, people, they'll take a light beam and they'll do some clever stuff with it and then they will take a cross section of that light beam and they'll look at uh, they'll try and observe the phase singularities in that and it's you know not something that i've ever done and it's not something that any of my co-authors have ever done so it was really good to have that bridge uh, in the peer review process and they the reviews were able to join a couple of dots and make a couple of really nice parallels that we missed because we didn't have quite that same expertise with this uh, more mainstream branch of literature on face singularities. So probably the favourite thing that came out of the review process for me was one point that the review is hinted at. There's a growing body of work now that's starting to look at what are called spatiotemporal singularities. And this is the idea of looking at how face singularities change when you have a couple of ultra short pulses of light and they uh, interact and you see face singularities being created and disappeared and that's the sort of thing that you see happening in ultra fast spectroscopy so the time scales are femtoseconds and what we did we you know we looked at our phase spectrum and we looked at how it changed as a function of time as we were gradually exposing the film of molecules to ultraviolet light 
and we gradually you know, saw the system change. And that happened. We saw something very similar happening, but it happened not over the course of femtoseconds, which, you know, is an effort to work at that kind of time. We saw it happen over the course of a few minutes, which is you know, much nicer. You can go and make a cup of tea while your face singularities are being created and destroyed. And I think that's... It's just so elegant and so simple, and it was a really nice parallel that the reviewers made. I, w I would like to add something. If someone is interested, the peer review is published with the, with the manuscript. So just if someone is interested, uh, it's, it's something that we are implementing in Edge Communications since, since 2016, and it would actually help also readers to understand how the peer review process was. So just this, this is a plus that, that, that authors get. Oh yeah, that sounds like that could be quite useful to to readers of the paper to actually see the back and forth and the exchange of ideas. So, Phillips, where do you think the field's going to be in say five or ten years' time? What are the big dreams for the the community? So, the real exciting thing for me is some primarily working in strong coupling. It's how are these molecules being modified? We know that there are some changes happening because we can measure these changes. We can see what's happening to coupled molecules. Are there any uncoupled molecules? Um, what are they doing? How are they contributing to the process? And to what extent are some of the more exotic effects actually tangible and uh, will have an effect in the real world? One question, for example, is, okay, if you have these molecules and you're, moder and you're changing these energy levels, does that mean you can change chemical processes? And uh, that's been a very hot topic for the past few years. And uh, we've got some experiments on the go that are probing that very question. I'm going to spend the rest of this week figuring out what the answer to it is. So don't ask me yet what the answer is. Well, Cristiano, it looks like you might get some some new exciting papers coming your way in the next yeah few years. yeah just it's like it's like I, i'm just the first time i heard about it just it's like just it's, it's really super nice super nice to hear about it and i think that this can this field is something since it's, it's it's growing now on on a really good base of knowledge but proposing new effects or creating new functionalities one thing is the all optical control that has been has been done. So just you are adding a kind of functionalities controlling the the face singularities, probably. And this is still uncertain. And this is the the good part of the field. We will have some great applications, but just the potential still have to be revealed. So uh, we will see in the, in in the next in the next years actually.